0: Welcome into the conversation. I am your host Adrian Lawrence. And today, we're joined by Washington DC attorney who happens to also be a member of the DC Police Reform Commission. And also the executive director of DC Justice Lab. Welcome in Patrice Salton. Thanks for joining us, Patrice. Thanks for having me and thanks for caring so much about these issues. Oh, Absolutely, without question. So let's first talk about DC Justice Lab. So as far as I understand it, the organization, it's comprised of law and police experts who develop strategies and solutions for really making sweeping change to the district's criminal legal system. But can you really put that into concrete terms so that our viewers understand what DC Justice Lab
1: efforts are? Yes, so we're a criminal justice policy shop in DC focused on DC. And what sets us apart is really the degree to which we're trying to change our criminal legal systems here. We're talking about monumental changes from the start of the system to the end of the system.
0: And I know you say from start to end, what does that kind of thing entail in terms of like those concrete measures that you, you are making changes for?
1: Yeah, so the things that we're fighting for hardest right now include placing severe limits on police authority in the district, fully overhauling all of our criminal laws and penalties, and abolishing the use of solitary confinement and other torture chambers in our local jail.
0: And okay, so I don't fully appreciate why solitary confinement might be so. Uh, you know, opposed to, but can you speak to why that is something that we do not want to continue on in our criminal justice system?
1: Absolutely. Our local Department of Corrections uses what they call safe cells. A person is stripped fully naked, the lights are on full brightness 24 hours a day, they don't have access to running water, and sometimes people are there for months at a time without access to visitors. And they don't even know what day it is. The use of solitary confinement has exploded during the pandemic in facilities all over the country because people are using it as a substitute for medical isolation. And a lot of people have been in medical lockdown and confined to their own cells for as much as 23 hours a day.
0: Oh my God, that's that's really jarring to hear, because even it's just a thought. Of the lights being on full bright, because having been in a number of studios just doing this TV work, the thought of being subjected to those lights at all point in time—that's wild. And so this isn't considered like an Eighth Amendment cruel and unusual punishment, you know, offense.
1: Well. Most facilities across the country, unfortunately, still use solitary confinement. There is a national effort to end the practice called unlock the box. And I'm hoping that DC won't be the only place to make efforts to reform this in the new year. Wow, well, thank
0: you for enlightening us to that, Patrice, because I was completely unaware that that goes on. And I know DC is currently, it has the highest incarceration rates, yet one of the lowest ranked criminal codes And one of the most racially imbalanced systems of justice in the United States. And I know you spent the last two years rewriting the criminal code in response to these infirmities. So kind of what was that experience like?
1: Yes, DC is in the process of rewriting its entire criminal code. I was very lucky to be a part of that process leading up to the launch of DC Justice Lab. And it's something that a lot of states should do. DC's criminal code hasn't been rewritten in full since 1901. And that's true in a lot of states. The best we've seen is some states in the 60s and 70s adopted a model penal code. But as you know, our values have changed a lot since then, right? The model penal code from the 60s and 70s, for example, has a marital exception to rape. That didn't actually (laughs) change nationwide until 1993. So it's time for us to really revisit our values and design codes that reflect them.
0: Oh, Absolutely, without question, especially if these are gonna be governing how we live and interact as people. And I know also in DC that nearly 90% of people incarcerated in local jails are black. Although Blacks only account for about 45% of the city's population. And this is really just a reflection of the inequities that are within our society. So how do you think the justice system can be changed to reduce these inequities?
1: Yeah, that is true across the board in our system. It's 90% black when you look at who's being surveilled, who's being policed, who's being stopped, arrested, prosecuted, incarcerated. And I think what we have to do is start talking about the hard cases. It's somewhat easy to talk about nonviolent offenses, drug offenses, juvenile delinquency. But if we're serious about reversing mass incarceration, we have to start talking about violent crime, gun crime, sex crime, and young adult offenders or people who have committed offenses as young adults, I should say. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, I don't, I don't mean to interrupt, go ahead. No, I I just think that you know those are the harder cases to talk about. And the reason that we have mass incarceration isn't just the number of people that we have in prisons. It's that we're keeping people there for way too long without any opportunity to earn their way home.
0: Yeah, and absolutely. And as we're seeing, more individuals be exonerated. Also, we learn of these stories of people being housed for so long without necessarily having the due process that they deserve. It makes us really, relook at our justice system, which is important. And I know that the DC Council, it's really on the verge of releasing offenders under the Second Look Amendment Act. And if this act is passed, people who committed crimes before the age of 25 can ask a judge for early release once they've served 15 years of their sentence. And I understand also that you advocated
1: for this bill and I want to know why. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we were a member of a coalition called Derive Under 25. And when you think about sentencing, of course, a judge can't see 15, 30, 50 years into the future to see who the person they're sentencing is going to grow into in adulthood. Or to see what we're going to look like as a society at that point in time. So what this bill does is it gives the court an opportunity to look again at that person's sentence. And it gives the person an incentive to create a record, establish a record for why they should get to go home.
0: And that's really cool, especially because you know it creates ways to open change. Because after you've been confined for a nice period of time, you have a lot of time to think, but also to grow, especially if you committed offense as a younger person. So making way for that and taking advantage of that is a good thing. Do you think that this is something that
1: will pass in the district? It passed our city council. We have an extra hurdle because we don't have statehood yet. But what I'm really hoping is that it will catch on other places. This is the first jurisdiction to pass a law like this.
0: That is very cool. And I also know that you and I are friends and we are former law school classmates and chums. And you are a staunch prison abolitionist. And we've gone back and forth in DMs and Twitter. Because I am Princess Punish these mofos. So (laughs) help me and the other viewers like me understand what the prison abolitionist movement is about and why we need it.
1: Sure, so First, I think we have more in common than we do differences on this point. When I say that I'm an abolitionist, what I mean is that I really want to live in a world where we don't have to rely on police and prisons as the salvation for all of our social harms. I wanna live somewhere that we have put the social supports in place to prevent crime and to address conflict without Relying on those very violent interventions as I described earlier. Do I think we're there yet? No, there is a lot of building that we have to do as we tear down. But I think it's a really worthy goal. And I know that where we agree is that our current system is much too big, much too black, much too expensive for us to continue on the path that we're on now. And I'm hoping that people will continue to join this movement that's really, really had a groundswell this year to rethink our carceral systems and how we punish and who we punish. Uh, and the thing is, like,
0: I won't fight you on that,
1: cuz I realize that most of my mentality
0: comes from retribution. I'm very, very well aware of my limitations, and I actually think that you're right. Cuz you're just far more level headed than me. When it comes to this, well, hey, I recognize when I have emotions in play, and so I make these decision decisions actually very well. But I guess we only have a few minutes left. But if you can tell us, kind of, how do you think we can reach that point where we can make the change that we need to? What are these things that we need to put in play? to make this abolitionist movement. Because in part, I do completely 100% agree that this is a capitalistic function, this prison system. So let's stop it while we can. And I'd still like to punish people when they act up. But I guess however we need to get here, let's get here.
1: Yeah, well, let's talk about policing. We have so much energy around the very sort of front end of policing, who we recruit, how we train them and the back end. How do we oversee policing and how do we discipline officers? But we should really be placing severe limits on their authority in the first place. And legislating, when can they make pedestrian stops, traffic stops? When can they execute search warrants? And really thinking about where we want police to serve a role in our communities. Ah, yes.
0: Oh, policing, that is its own can of worms. But thank you so much for joining us, Patrice. We really appreciate it. Can you tell the viewers where they can find
1: you? Yes, thank you. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DC Justice Lab. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining us.
0: It's Adrian Lawrence coming back at you, and I'm joined by someone who you may already know. Well, this is Beth Burden. She's an attorney and FOIA force behind the formidable former TYT er Ken Klippenstein. Welcome in, Beth. Hi, thank you for having me. Now, Beth, you and Ken Klippenstein have become a force When it comes to obtaining government information under the Freedom of Information Act, better known as FOIA. But you do this all pro bono and for free. So what inspires you to represent Klippenstein
2: in these legal battles? Um, There's a lot that I didn't know about national security issues. And I think reading Ken's articles is what really got me into it. And then one day he said, hey, would you be interested in helping? And it, it sort of clicked, with some of the work that I do in my day job. So I said, yeah, absolutely, let's do this. And so now I'm, I guess, Ken's muscle. And muscle indeed, because I know
0: you've won some really impactful cases, which we'll get to very soon. But also, I was wondering in terms of like your knowledge base, and now you're in the FOIA space, kind of just getting out there to help Ken and to really advance journalism.
2: Did you find that it was a steep learning curve? It's not as steep as I expected it to be. I had already been asking for public records from a lot of local law enforcement agencies, so i I had a local and a state base to start from. There is a lot to learn, but it's there's a lot of people out there doing it, and it's out there on a FOIA wiki as well, which is just an incredible wiki. really recommend it for anyone that's looking to submit their own requests. And so I'm still learning and I will always have something to learn, but it wasn't as difficult as I expected. Well,
0: you definitely have a leg up because you are doing so well. And as I understand you, you and Ken recently won a big case in Florida courts ordering that the Florida Department of Law Enforcement really has to release these documents on intelligence practices.
2: So how impactful was that ruling? Well, we think that we probably would have gotten only half of the things that we wanted and that it would have been at least six months down the road heavily redacted. And what we're hopeful for is minimal redactions here from the arguments that were made during the hearing. And we will have the documents no later than 5 PM on December 31st. And that's huge for Ken because Mean much of the value of these documents is lost once the Biden administration comes in. That's a really good point. And I know that Ken is going to
0: turn that around into a very important piece that's going to shed a light on what the Trump administration has been into. And so that's super helpful for all of us, which is amazing. And I also know that, you know, many people may not realize that FOIA fights aren't your day job. If I understand this correctly, you're currently assigned to the Major Crimes Division at the Public Defender's Office in Florida where you represent people charged with first or second-degree murder, which is pretty intense. So, how has having this ground-level view of the criminal justice system really shaped
2: you? Um Starting from the criminal justice system, I already had a poor view of government and how the government treats people. And FOIA just reinforces that. And it intersected with a death penalty case that I had. Eventually we had to conflict off, but my client was alleged to have entered the US illegally, been deported and come back. And we need those records for mitigation. And the government didn't want to give it to us, even though he signed a document, because clients aren't always the best person to know exactly all of the answers that the government wants filled out on these forms to get your alien file. So it just happened to to mix really well, and um, that's why I really wanted to get into it because it it can and will help with my death penalty mitigation work. So it. It just is perfect for me, really. Wow, and the thing is, is I don't know that a lot of people
0: appreciate how important mitigating evidence is in capital cases. Because that could make the difference between you know, life or death. And so yes. in terms of explaining that to people, I guess, how can you really help people understand essentially the barriers that the government is unfortunately putting in
2: place here? Well, it's not only barriers to receiving the information that you want and need. It's also receiving it in a timely manner. Judges don't like to hear, I'm still waiting on documents from the Veterans Administration. They don't wanna hear US Customs and Immigration Services aren't responding to my request for his file. That's not something that they're concerned with, they want us to hurry up. I can't hurry it up, but with litigation I can. And that's doing these cases and filing these cases for Ken is helping me to know um, what kind of timeline I'd be looking at with the lawsuit, which isn't a lot better than waiting on the documents to come and hoping, but it is somewhat better.
0: Absolutely. And also, I'd love to explore a little bit more about the capital cases that you work on, in part because we've seen so many individuals be put to death right in these last few months of the Trump administration, in part where it's supposed to be a lame duck period. Also, we're supposed to be moving away. Largely just from the Trump administration, yet we have these individuals suffering. And we've as we learned these last few days, we have two inmates who are on death row who are supposed to be sentenced to death during the Trump administration who have tested positive for COVID. And yet the Department of Justice will not stop those executions. And I'm wondering how does this resonate with you?
2: Well, Obviously, I'm against the death penalty. I'm against rushing executions to try to meet some quota before you before you leave. There's a lot of controversy surrounding in my world, in my work, surrounding the federal government looking to give alternate ways to go through with these executions. And I just think that, as a society, when we have so many people who are death row exonerees, why do we trust this system to be right? And now you're rushing people to the death chamber. It just it it needs a really hard look that it hasn't gotten, and I'm hopeful that it will once the Biden administration comes in.
0: Yes, I'm hopeful as well. Because you're absolutely right, when there is some doubt, especially when you have dissents from the Supreme Court saying we shouldn't do this until we've made sure that we are certain that all the evidence and the justice has been done. It really does make you rethink how our government is operating. And so I guess, what do you think that the system needs in terms of the Biden administration? What would you like them to know?
2: I would like them to know that there's so much junk science out there that's relied on in these cases that witnesses aren't as reliable as judges give them the credibility for. It's presumed that a judge that's in the courtroom has the best opportunity to view the credibility. But it's been proven through experts time and again that witness reliability as to identification isn't as strong as the courts would make it out to be. So that's number one, number two, you need to look at the way confessions are done. You need to look at um, the science that people are putting forward to say this is the proper science and it, there's so much more that needs to happen that it, it just needs an entire overhaul.
0: Absolutely, and hopefully we will get that with the Biden administration, because you're absolutely right. Um, it's, it's nonsense, it's unfortunate, but also you'd like to think we're past these barbaric practices. Yet clearly they seem to be very much instituted and ingrained in our justice system, which is kind of an oxymoron because there is no justice there. Um, but I know we only have about two minutes left. So if you don't mind sharing and you're able to share, uh, what are the next FOIA things that you are working on right now? Well,
2: what I'd like to get into is, um, we have a suit that we just filed against the Department of Justice. And it's just the perfect suit for Ken because it involves leakers. Um, Crime reports get sent to the Department of Justice for the unauthorized um, leaking of classified information, for lack of better terms, and so we wanted the number that happens annually from 2009 to the present, and we also wanted those reports to see, you know, who's who's leaking to the media and, and who are they reporting. So that's um, that's something we're really excited about that we just filed a couple of weeks ago.
0: Oh my God, that is like super exciting! Just hearing you say that.
2: Um, what
0: state are you guys seeking that in? Uh, We
2: filed it here in Florida, I'm located in the middle district of Florida, so that's where it's filed. And um, the lawsuit that we filed against the eight uh, national security agencies, that one's also filed here in the middle district of Florida.
0: Oh Wow, well, we'll definitely be interested in that and keep an eye on it. So thank you so much, Beth, for joining us. And also for your pro bono efforts that advance Ken Klippenstein's, you know, his groundbreaking journalism, as we're all, all the better for it. And I know it's not cheap to file these cases and to continue to fight them. So, can you please tell the viewers how they can support your work and Ken's work and make sure that it continues?
2: Oh, absolutely. We're on, well, I'm on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Beth Borden, and Borden is B O U R D O N and um, there's no minimum or maximum to it. And we're using all of it to fight against the government.
0: Excellent, thank you so much for joining us Beth, much appreciated. Thank
2: you for having me.